This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Monday, March 6th. I'm Gavin McGough. And I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, county softened fees on new home builders. G is for government, previews Telluride Town Council. Capital Conversation talks gun regulation. And a mountain weather forecast. But first, KOTO reflects the values of this unique community that celebrates civil liberties, nonconformist creativity, egalitarian social values, and the historic preservation of Telluride. Show your support for your local radio station by going to koto.org to donate. And thank you. Norwood lost a member of its community this week. Bobby Lee Falk died in her Norwood home on Monday morning after collapsing. According to the San Miguel County Coroner's Office, EMS arrived on the scene and tried to resuscitate Falk, but were unsuccessful. She was 66 years old. Falk loved the outdoors. Her home in Norwood provided her opportunities for hunting, fishing, searching for arrowheads, all things she loved. The cause and manner of death is under investigation. Crippen Funeral Home will attend to services. Falk is survived by her sister, Shelley, her children, Chad, Chance, Christopher, and Chelsea, and her husband, Fred. In July of 2022, San Miguel County updated its housing impact mitigation fee with the first substantial changes in over a decade. Building a residential house requires employees both for the construction phase and for the maintenance of the home. A mitigation fee allows the county to tax homes being built in order to direct money towards affordable housing initiatives to house those employees. Now, only eight months later, the county is adjusting the changes made last summer. Senior planner for San Miguel County, John Hubner, explains the new adjustments. The proposed mitigation rate is still graduated, but it follows a smooth line and reflects the 2,000 square foot floor area exemption. And rather than jumping at the transition points as previously, it follows a smooth line. The proposed amendment is, is fairly clerical in nature. The county is softening some of the mitigation efforts it put in place last year. As Hubner mentions, houses under 1,800 square feet were originally exempt. Now, that exemption extends to any houses under 2,000 square feet. Additionally, the fee curve is being smoothed and made more moderate, so fees will be more proportional to the size of the home being built. Despite the Board of County Commissioners moderating the fee structure, public comment was still largely focused on opposing any such fees in the first place. Director of Operations for El Desoro Ranch, Shelley Duplan, says the county is using an outdated study. We appreciate the changes being considered today, uh, but we remain uh, pretty concerned about the county relying on an outdated 23-year-old job generation study uh, from which to base your increased we, start, we strongly encourage you and request that you suspend the increased fees, set it back to the old rate until you have an opportunity to properly update the foundational studies. Elizabeth Tipton adds funding affordable housing should not fall on builders of new homes. The impact fees as enacted and even as per the proposed revi- revisions are an attempt to tax one segment of the San Miguel County community without a vote of the taxpayers. Um, It's my belief that if the BOCC is confident that they're pursuing the correct policy, 
then there should be no reason not to have a countywide vote. Everyone is in favor of affordable housing. Everyone will benefit from affordable housing. So everyone should pay for affordable housing, not just the landowners who want to build. The Board of County Commissioners voted to approve a number of changes. They raised the exempt building size to 2,000 square feet and adjust the fee curve. The commissioners also make the changes retroactive, so any homeowners who overpaid in the past eight months qualify for a refund. Telluride Town Council is meeting on Tuesday with Fats, Oils, Grease, the Telluride Historical Museum, and the Hickox Rule on the docket. In this installment of G is for Government, Councilmember Geneva Shawnette shares what to expect. Have a listen. Hey Geneva, thanks for taking a couple minutes to chat with me. Yes, of course. So Telluride Town Council is back on Tuesday, and you are starting off the morning at 10 a.m. with several work sessions that kind of run the gambit on things that you could be talking about. What are those looking at? Yeah, definitely. So our first work session is at 10 a.m., and it is going to be a discussion on the town's fats, oils, and grease ordinance and program. Um, I'm just going to mention a few of the key things right now, but we're having some issues down at the wastewater treatment plant because people are pouring uh, cooking grease, cooking fat down the drain, and it's really making a headache for our wastewater treatment plant and our staff. They're having to clear out um, a lot of grease. So as a reminder, please wipe out any... Uh, oil, fats, grease in the garbage can with a paper towel and throw it away and do not put a uh, vegetable food waste down the sink, throw it in the garbage or the compost. Thank you for this public for listening to this public service announcement. If you want to hear more about it, tune in at 10. Um, after that, we have uh, an update from Kiernan Lannan from the Telluride Historic Museum. We always get an annual report on how the museum's doing, so we'll get that at 10.30, um, followed by a request of funding and a discussion about paving the Bridal Veil parking lot at the end of the canyon, um, since we sort of work together with the county on that, uh, managing that area. Those are the three main things that are happening in the morning. Scott Robson, the town manager, will be giving his manager's report, which typically goes at the end of the day, but there is some free time before lunch. So y'all will be covering that then. And then in the afternoon, it's a pretty um, light agenda, you might say, in terms of things that folks might be really interested in tuning in for. Do you mind quickly chatting about, um, there's going to be a vote on some amendments to the municipal code regarding elections. What does that do? Yeah, so there's uh, some election uh, rules and stipulations with our local uh, home rule charter and code that just need to be clarified and cleaned up and hadn't been updated in a really long time. So our clerk, Tiffany Cavanaugh, put together a whole uh, range of little changes we could make to just make it easier to understand, um, and that goes for campaign stuff and uh, citizens initiatives and everything like that. So just clarifications, um, more cleanup kind of edits. Yeah, they're kind of in the weeds things, but important if you want to participate in your local government. Absolutely. Um, we are, we're also have second reading and approval of an ordinance where we will be um, clarifying and updating some noticing laws that have to do with HARC and P&Z um, 
construction projects, basically. So making sure that it's uh, easy for everyone in the community to know what's going on and get involved if they want to um, with any of these development projects. Perfect. Well, um, thanks for bopping over today, and we'll see you either in person or on Zoom or over the airwaves on Tuesday. Sounds good. We'll see you then. Gun regulation is a hot topic at Colorado's General Assembly. This week on Capital Conversation, KOTO State House reporter Lucas Brady Woods gives an update on bills making their way through the legislature. Hey, Lucas, thanks for taking a couple minutes to chat with me today. Thanks for having me. So we're going to kind of do a little bit of a deep dive on some of the um, bills and things surrounding gun regulation that's happening at the state capitol. Democrats earlier this session um, released a number of bills looking at gun regulation, and one of them is getting its first hearing, I believe, as we speak. (laughs) Um, Can you share a little bit what that bill is looking to do? Yeah, it it is in a hearing as we speak, and this hearing might go on for a while because you know, it, these these gun regulation bills can be pretty controversial and, and you know, bring in a lot of witnesses to testify in a hearing, you know, for both sides. This specific bill was part of the Democrats' four-bill gun package that was introduced last month. And, and this specific one would uh, impose a waiting period of at least three days from between the purchase of a gun and its actual delivery to the person who purchased it. And the main goal of this is to create a delay to hopefully put a stop to or help put a stop to some impulsive acts of gun violence that can happen when someone purchases a gun. Uh, Bill sponsor Judy Amabile, representative from the Boulder area, she tells a personal story when she talks about this bill. Her son has struggled with various uh, mental health issues for a while, and um, she's shared that he has struggled with suicidal ideation and a few suicide attempts. And one day, a while back, um, I believe when he was a in his late teens or early twenties, as as far as the representative has told the story, he, you know, was able to go and purchase a gun. But thankfully. There, were, there was a background check that delayed the delivery of the gun, and his parents were able to go to the gun store and discuss it with the gun store owner who canceled the sale because it turns out that that uh, her Amabile's son was buying the gun to attempt suicide. So that's her personal connection to this bill and the example she uses about how a delay, uh, in her words, saved his life. Um, critics say that it's you know, an undue restriction on the Second Amendment, um, and they say that that's unconstitutional. You know, so so this is just one of, as I said, four bills forward, and the other bills would raise the purchasing age for firearms to 21. Would Another one would make it easier for victims of gun violence to file lawsuits against gun manufacturers or gun stores, and... Um, Another would expand Colorado's red flag laws. You uh, you mentioned Amabile's story and her um, connection to this bill. And, you know, I think often when you hear um, or when there's 
bills addressing gun regulation on both sides. You often hear pretty passionate testimony, um, including, you know, outside of the walls of the Capitol. There was a rally or protest over the weekend from some young people who were um, discussing this issue that that you were at that rally. What was that like? Yeah, there were there were actually thousands of students here, uh, as far as I can estimate, uh, from East High School here in Denver. And they actually staged a walkout of class on Friday morning, shortly after the school day started, and marched all the way down 16th Street here in Denver to the state capitol, uh, where they essentially, you know, demonstrated to lawmakers that they're demanding action against gun violence. And the one of the impetuses for this this, this demonstration was that one of their classmates, Luis Garcia, a 16-year-old soccer player, uh, died last week on Wednesday after he had suffered a gunshot wound a few weeks previous to that right near campus. Uh, I believe it was he was sitting in his car when a shooter uh, fired into the car and, and hit him and he died, you know, after a, a long fight in the hospital. But that that death, you know, he was he knew a lot of these students personally. He was teammates with many of them, and they all marched here to honor him. And they really want lawmakers to do something. They they say that they're afraid to go to school and living in really a, an atmosphere of fear because they feel like they could be shot anywhere at any time. That's that's what they're that's what they told me on Friday. Obviously, um, we've said it many times that Democrats have really strong majorities in both the House and Senate in Denver. Um, but gun regulation is also a contentious uh, subject in, in our country. What is the likelihood that these bills actually make it through both the House and the Senate and then get signed into law by Governor Jared Polis? That's interesting because Republicans really vow complete opposition to these bills. Uh, they are in total uh, belief that these are infringements on the Second Amendment rights, and they will oppose them. Now, like you said, there's a large Democratic majority here in the legislature, and I think these bills have a good chance. Um, you know, there was and possibly still is another bill floating around that has yet to be officially introduced that would ban the new sale of assault weapons. It would also define those assault weapons. Now that, if that gets introduced, would have a harder time making its way through. And I'm not sure the governor would sign that bill. Uh, but I think these other gun control measures are more incremental and do seem to have wide support from Democrats. Um, and, and I think that there's a chance that they could make it through, despite, you know, whatever opposition the Republicans can mount against them. Yeah. Well, uh, I imagine you may have some long hours in committee chambers listening to testimony, and we will definitely um, keep in touch as you continue to report on these bills. And Lucas, thank you so much for taking a couple minutes to chat with me today. As always, thanks for having me, and I'll talk to you next week. That was KOTO's Lucas Brady-Woods reporting from Denver. Patient is a word they have perfected standing silent until wind from the north urges small moans out of their throats, and so they sway and sing. Those are the opening words of Devereux Baker's poem, Redwood. Baker is the featured poet for this month's Talking Gourds Poetry Club's 
Bardic Trails Poetry Night. Baker's work includes five books of poetry, Light at the Edge, Beyond the Circumstance of Sight, Red Willow People, Out of the Bones of Earth, and Hungry Ghosts. She is a Fisher National Poetry Prize winner from the Telluride Institute, a Penn Poetry Prize recipient, and a recipient of the Women's Global Leadership Poetry Prize. Talking Gourds Poetry Club is hosting this month's club in collaboration with the Wilkinson Public Library between the Covers Bookstore, the Telluride Institute, and the Telluride Arts District. At the event, Baker will read some of her work with time for questions about her influences and inspirations, and there will be time for participants to share their own poetry. For those who desire, March's poetic prompt is alignment. The event will take place on Tuesday, March 7th at 7 p.m. via Zoom. Registration is available at telluridelibrary.org. Water levels in Lake Powell, the nation's second-largest reservoir on the Colorado River, are at a record low. To keep it from declining further, federal officials are ready to spend tens of millions of dollars to incentivize farmers and other water users on the river's upper basin to conserve. But not everyone agrees that paying farmers not to farm is the way forward. Chris Clemens of KSJD has more. Greg Vlaming is a farmer who lives in Lewis, in southwest Colorado. We're standing on his snowy farm field, looking out across his land. This is the orchard area. I've got a couple of hundred trees in there. They're just in their fifth year. At our feet is Vlaming's metal diversion box, through which water flows to irrigate his fields. There's been a lot of conservation done in this area over the years to um, deliver and use the water as efficiently as possible. Those ongoing conservation efforts are getting a significant expansion this year in the form of a rebooted System Conservation Pilot Program, or SCPP. Vlaming is trying to convince other farmers in the region that the program is a good idea. And I think conservation is something that we're obligated to do given our weather situation and our, and our shortage of water. The SCPP passed Congress in December and sets aside $125 million in federal funds. That money would pay farmers like Vlaming to use less water and leave some of their fields unplanted this growing season. Here's how the program works. Farmers and other water users throughout Colorado, Wyoming, New Mexico, and Utah can apply for federal payments, and in exchange, they promise to use less water from the Colorado River Basin and the water they would have used to grow their crops stays in the river. We've been in a 20-plus year drought here, and we're trying to make the most of what little water we have. I'm not planning on applying. I feel like it's too close to demand management. That's Jeremy Redshaw, a farmer who lives just down the road from Vlaming in Dove Creek. These kinds of conservation programs that pay farmers not to farm are polarizing. Redshaw says he's concerned if farmers start reducing their water use, it could have ripple effects throughout the local economy. I want to keep farming. I want my kids to keep farming. Elizabeth Cobley studies water policy at the University of Nevada, Reno, and says farmers might be wary of a program like the SCPP because they see it as a slippery slope, a small program that could someday result in the widespread drying of agricultural land. It could lead to, um, or I should say, longer-term drying of land, which then has impacts like negative ecological outcomes. So I think those things are um, kind of on the top of people's heads with this. She also says the amount of money the program is offering, $150 per acre foot of water, could be too low to entice them to participate. 
if people know that we really need this water, then maybe they'd want to be paid a higher price for it. Maybe they're concerned about, you know, whether this compensation actually accounts for potential negative impacts to their field. She says it's also difficult to prove the conserved water is actually ending up in Lake Powell, where it's desperately needed. In other words, there's no guarantee that farmers' sacrifices and the federal funds to incentivize them will actually help boost the reservoir's levels. Chuck Cullum says that's a valid concern. So there is some risk that uh, not all the water will make it to Lake Powell. That's a, that's a fair characterization. Cullum is the executive director of the Upper Colorado River Commission, the agency tasked with guiding this expanded conservation effort. He says the SCPP is ultimately focused on making the upper basin more resilient to drying conditions. And so we will continually be evaluating the effectiveness of the actions based on the entire the entirety of the what's happening both in the lower basin and upper basin. For farmer Greg Vlaming, a conservation program like the SCPP, even with its many caveats, is important to upper basin farmers like him because... Water is a finite resource and it's our limiting factor here for our agricultural economy. And so I'm, I'm concerned about that. And he says, for him, saving water on his farm is about doing what's right. I'm Chris Clements in Cortez, Colorado. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for clouds tonight with a low near 25 degrees. Tuesday calls for cloudy skies with a high near 40 degrees and wind gusts near 35 miles per hour. Tuesday night should bring clearing, a low near 20, and Wednesday calls for partly sunny skies and a high near 40 degrees. Wednesday night should be mostly cloudy with a low near 15. This has been the news for Monday, March 6th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. We would like to thank everyone who has donated to Kodo during our winter fund drive. A huge thank you to Catherine Forsnick and Jean Wheel, Dan Houlihan, David and Nancy Platt, John Hedger, Robert Mellick, Jeremy Frymoyer, George Lewis, John Adolph, J.W. Amond, Ken Bailey, Adam Baker, Mike Balzer, Sam Barnes, Kendall Barrett, Dave Barry, Scott and Pamela Bennett, Ashley Bowling, Marilyn Branch, Joan May, Matt Vietti, Max Walker Silverman, Delaney Young, Christopher Warren, Dave Valentine, Carson and Hillary Taylor, and Brewster Shaw. Thank you all so much. Personal commentaries. Attention parents with young children. Do you want to learn how to incorporate science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics into activities with your kids? Join Bright Futures, Wilkinson Public Library, and Telluride R1 School District on Wednesday, March 8th for an interactive parenting workshop all about STEAM. This free workshop begins at 5.30 p.m., and dinner will be provided. Spanish translation will be available. See you and your kids at the library. Equal pay for equal work should be a no-brainer. However, even in 2023, pay inequity persists. 
Did you know Caucasian women earn only 80 cents for every dollar a Caucasian man makes? It's even worse for women of color, with black women earning 65 cents, Latina women 55 cents, and American Indian women earning 60 cents for every dollar a Caucasian man makes. Aside from being unequal and unjust, pay inequity can greatly impact a woman negatively throughout her life, including lessening a woman's ability to care for her family. Half of women are their family's breadwinner. Pay inequity weakens a woman's ability to leave an abusive situation if she cannot support herself or her children alone. It lessens her ability to pay off educational debt. Women currently hold two-thirds of the nation's student debt. And pay inequity diminishes a woman's ability to save for retirement, including less saving through Social Security because of having earned less throughout her life. On Wednesday, March 8th, the Progressive Women's Caucus will bring attention to the issue of pay inequity through a good old-fashioned bake sale. As a long-standing tradition and celebration of International Women's Day, the Equal Pay Bake Sale aims to illustrate current pay inequity rates. So, for example, a man who identifies as Caucasian will pay $1 for a baked good, while a woman who identifies as American Indian will pay $0.60 cents for that same baked good. Along with the opportunity to purchase delicious baked goods, community members will have the chance to learn about pay inequity and what we can do to change it. All funds raised from the bake sale will be dedicated to the first ever PWC Leadership Scholarship for a graduating senior who represents the PWC's mission and goals. So stop by the Equal Pay Bake Sale on Wednesday, March 8th, anytime between 12 p.m. and 4 p.m. If you're interested in baking some delicious treats to contribute, give us a call at 970-708-0524. And don't forget today and every day to smash, smash, smash the patriarchy. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at Kodo. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.